0: Welcome everyone to the Garden Nerd Tip of the Week podcast, where garden nerds from around the world talk shop, share stories, and offer their favorite tip. I'm your host, Christy Wilhelmi. Today is change of pace day. Just you and me, garden nerds. This week, I'm going to address some of the things that are happening in my own garden, as well as some questions we've received at Ask Garden Nerd. First up, and I think one of the most important things that has been showing up in the garden is basil downy mildew. The botanical name is Peronospora belbari, and there's an H in there. Uh, It first appeared in the United States in 2007, and is technically a water mold, not a fungus, but it has a very fungus-like appearance, and so it gets couched in with fun fungal infestations a lot what does it look like well it is usually it appears where you start to see the tops of the basil leaves getting this kind of pale yellow spotting or you know just fading of color and then when you flip it over that's when you see black or dark gray fungus covering the undersides of the leaves it is something that showed up and really has not dissipated since it arrived. It's taking down basil plants like crazy, and so there have been some solutions that have come up that I'll talk about in a minute. But, you know, it can arrive through either contaminated seed, infected plants you buy from the nursery, which I go there all the time and I see them infected with downy mildew, or Uh, the spores are windborne. Yay, it's lose-lose. So, you know, when you see this happen, remove the affected plants. You can take off the parts of the plant that are affected and hope that maybe it'll grow back a little bit better. Um, You can reduce the spread of the spores by watering at the soil level or with drip irrigation, not from overhead. And there are a lot of different treatments out there, but I have to say the best solution, this is one of those times where growing a downy mildew resistant variety is going to help a lot. So downy mildew resistant is abbreviated as DMR and the varieties that I've, I've grown a, uh, a Rutgers variety called Rutgers devotion, and it's not a hybrid. It's an open pollinated variety, but it is, uh, bred to be downy mildew resistant. And there are a bunch of different Rutgers, uh, varieties out there that you can try I've also seen uh, one university website suggest a variety called Eleonora, and others that have said that red leaf varieties and lemon basils tend to be less susceptible, but that Genovese is the most susceptible, which there are a lot of varieties based on the Genovese strain. Now, let's talk about sprays, because some people want to reach for the fungicides as soon as you see, you know, this kind of thing. But remember, it's a water mold, not a fungi, technically, and so the sprays, it's been basically proven, not proven, but I would say that the university studies are showing that that doesn't, that sprays, fungal sprays, are not very effective. And also, you're eating the leaf, so it's not something I really recommend using fungal sprays on leafy things that you're going to eat anyway. Now I did find one source that said to use copper spray. And I I just want to like put on the brakes. Let's talk about copper spray for a minute here. Copper is an element. It's a, it's a heavy metal and copper, like so many other heavy metals, they persist in soils. They don't Dissipate; They don't go away. And if you build up an accumulation of copper in your soil, it is cumulative, by the way, so the more you use copper spray, the more it builds up in your soil, the more it binds up nutrients away from plants. So I am always very, very cautious in recommending copper spray as an absolute last resort. Otherwise, you're, you're kind of condemning yourself down the line. Your soil's not going to like you for long. So grow downy mildew resistant varieties of basil remove affected leaves right away rotate crops to plant in different places every year and make sure you are uh, keeping an eye on how you're watering these plants Uh, it thrives in humid and warm conditions so if you live in a humid or warm place (laughs) this is probably going to be part of your life for a while so that's basil downy mildew Now, let's talk about volunteers. This is kind of a fun one. I want to throw this in between two more difficult things to talk about. What are they? Volunteers. It's a term that always surprises new gardeners. Like, what's a volunteer? Well, a volunteer, it's not like someone who puts on a t-shirt and picks up beach trash. No, it is a plant that volunteers, that shows up in your garden, sow seeds for this, you did not cultivate this, you didn't bring in a, a seedling for it. It just sprouted, maybe out of your compost bin or in a pathway or in a bed that has some fresh compost in it that you made yourself volunteers most often are really great gifts from nature because I call them nature's slap in the face they do far better than most plants that we cultivate on purpose uh, I don't know exactly why that is but they have more resistance they're durable they drive down deep roots they thrive on neglect and they I just love them so I've had some tomato plants that volunteer and I let them go and they produce fantastic little cherry tomatoes, little yellow cherry tomatoes every year. I had, a, I had a tomato climb all the way up into my Cecil Bruner rose bush that was like 15 feet tall. I was picking tomatoes from overhead and it was in the shade, full shade, and never got watered. And it was producing like crazy. Now that's a good volunteer. So not all volunteers are great. They can be, you know, invasive. Let's talk about the difference between volunteers you may want to encourage versus those you may not want to encourage. Things that I love to let volunteer, and that usually happens by letting them go to seed, letting them flower, letting them set seed, and just kind of beating that seed head around and letting the seeds disperse. I do that every year with cilantro and parsley, calendula. I do it with uh, marigolds. I do it with alyssum and California poppies. Uh, those Those are good flowers to do. I also let my lettuces go to seed. Arugula, try and stop it from going to seed. Tomatoes, when they volunteer, like I said, they're great. And squashes, you know, squashes are kind of funny because you never know what you're going to get. I have one growing in my garden this season that I, it was right in the way of everything I wanted to plant or everything I did plant actually, but I, I waited just long enough for it to start setting fruit. And then I realized it was a spaghetti squash. So I kept it and I've got two big squashes on it. This free volunteer plant, free food. Come on. What are you going to lose? Nothing. Okay. Well, it's maybe crowding out my green onions, but oh well. Uh, those are those are good plants to let volunteer. I would not recommend letting things like love-in-a-mist, uh, you know, nasturtiums. If you only have a small space, don't let those volunteer all over the place because they do spread. And milkweed. So if you're growing a non-native milkweed, like a tropical milkweed, it's highly invasive and it can harbor pathogens that are bad for monarchs. So make sure you pull those little buggers out and uh, keep them from spreading all over your yard volunteers they're good they can be bad but most of the time they are free food and lots of less work for you all right moving on The last thing I want to talk about before we get to our tip of the week is Harlequin beetles and Bagrata bugs. Now they are two different beetles. They look very similar, but they are very different. Now we have Bagrata bugs here where I live. They migrated up from uh, from Mexico up to Southern California and beyond. Harlequin beetles are located, they kind of are found all over the place, Uh, but they're both stink bugs and because they're stink bugs they resist bug spray you can spray them with... <laughs> they they're resistant to a couple of things birds don't like to eat them cuz they're stink bugs they taste awful and they're resistant to bug spray so they really are sort of indes- you know indestructible and so I have a couple of suggestions for you if you have them in your yard. One of the things, especially, this is a, specifically about bogrita bugs. Bogrita bugs breed in temperatures over 73 degrees. And they are attracted to brassicaceae plants. Your broccoli, cauliflower, cabbage, kohlrabi, brussels sprouts, and kale. As well as radishes, arugula, and mustard greens. Those are all the radishes, the radish family, they're all in the mustard family. brassicaceae are all part of the mustard family. You want to avoid growing those during the warm weather. Because otherwise, they'll be plants will be completely covered with these buggers, and once they get going, they'll breed for you know hundreds of them at a time, and it's hard to keep after them. One way you can eliminate that is by not growing things during the warm weather and temperatures over 73 degrees. I only grow my Brassicaceae plants in the fall and through winter because it doesn't get that hot here. Now. You can also use one of these Brassicaceae plants that I mentioned as a trap crop because they'll all hang out there and then you can either bag the crop and pull it or do what I like to do, which is get two buckets and fill one of them with about two inches of water, spray the surface with soap spray or put some dish soap in there, and then take your second bucket and hold it up to the plant and I bang on the plant toward the bucket, and you get like a hundred of them at a time in the bucket, and then you drop them in the bucket with water and soap spray, and they drown. And I do that, you know, every day for a a few days, and you'll drastically reduce the population, and then they're more manageable at that point. Then you can pull the trap crop and get them out of there. So that's how to manage harlequin beetles and bugs. Uh, on on the ground. If it's happening to you right now, that's what I recommend doing and your garden will thank you for it. All right, it is tip time. It's corn season. So I'm going to share my strategy for picking corn at the right time. For those of you who aren't familiar with this, that right time is called the milk stage. What you want to do is it's all about timing and especially if you're planting corn at, at all at once, the way to do it is this. You're going to keep your eyes peeled for the silks. Now, the tassels that come off the top of the corn stalk first, that's the male flower. And then the silks come out from the edge of the stalk, and those are the female flowers that will pollinate the e- each kernel of corn inside the ear. So you watch for those silks to emerge. And when they emerge, when silks emerge, I physically mark my calendar. I have a Google calendar that I use, and I put in a a date reminder that says today silks came out and then count 18 to 21 days from when those silks emerge and start testing for the milk stage now the milk stage is the optimal time when the sugars are high in the corn ear or the kernels themselves i should say and you want to catch it before they turn to starch what does that look like it's easy you want to peel back the husk. Oh, also, I should, I should let you know that when corn starts to be ready, it begins to lean out away from the, the center stalk. So you're going to see it just kind of angled away, and that's going to be the first hint that it's probably time to start checking. So you want to peel back a part of the husk and take your thumbnail and pierce one of the kernels. And the liquid that emerges from that when you pierce a kernel, if it's clear, It's not ready. We're not there. Wait another, you know, check back in a a couple more days. If it's milky, you're in the milk stage and you should harvest it and eat it right away. If you pierce the kernel and nothing comes out, it's too late. It's already gone to starch. So this isn't a waste. You should just let it continue to dry on the stock and then save it for cornmeal. Or you can pick it and freeze it for, you know, use in something that doesn't really mind starchy corn, like soups. I will uh, cut all the corn ears, take the corn kernels off those older stalks, and put them in the freezer on a cookie sheet individually freezing them and then after about an hour or so they're frozen enough to put in a bag and store for later and then use those in meals later on but if you want to catch it in the milk stage follow my my advice for marking your calendar for 18 to 21 days and you'll be in that pocket All right, Garden Nerds, you'll find links to everything I talked about during this podcast on GardenNerd.com. That's it for this week. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Visit us for tons of free gardening information at GardenNerd.com. Show your support for this podcast and the other free stuff on Garden Nerd by becoming a Patreon subscriber. You'll find us on Instagram and Twitter under GardenNerd1, on Facebook as GardenNerd.com, and of course, our Garden Nerd YouTube channel. Happy gardening!